0: Good evening, everyone, and welcome to the 2015 University of Edinburgh Gifford Lecture Series. Uh, my name is Kenneth Ameshi. I'm a reader in strategy and international business. I'm also the director of the Sustainable Business Initiative and a member of the Gifford Lectureship Committee at the University of Edinburgh. I'm delighted to welcome our distinguished speaker, Professor Jeremy Wardron, as he continues his Gifford Lecture Series on the theme one another's equals the basis of human equality. This evening, Professor Waldron will deliver his second lecture entitled, Everyone to Count for One, The Logic of Basic Equality. The lecture this evening is being recorded and the video will be shortly available online on the university's Gifford website. And I have great pleasure and hand you over to Professor Jeremy Wadron.
1: Thank you. I think it's a little colder than it was yesterday. If it's going to get cold by degrees by the end of the six lectures, you'll be freezing when you come in here. Uh, I appreciate the introduction, Kenneth. Thank you very much. Yesterday, I raised for our consideration the issue of basic equality, our being one another's equals, no one greater or more considerable in moral terms than anybody else, or in another formulation, our equal worth, or in yet another formulation, our equal dignity, uh, the basis on which equal respect is required of each of us, for each of us, for each of us humans. And I contrasted basic equality with what I called principles of surface equality, which are no less important, but they're not the subject of these lectures. Those surface principles are principles that command, for example, equal opportunity, or less inequality of income, or well being, or access to wealth, or primary goods, or the development of human capabilities. As the metaphor of depth, basic equality suggests, I think of basic equality as a foundation, an underpinning, uh, underpinning the principles of surface equality, explaining the importance of surface equality um, in some cases, explaining perhaps the permissibility of various forms of surface level inequality as better serving basic equality than a simple equalization would serve. Although I did say, at the end of yesterday's lecture that it does seem to me that some of the inequalities, the grotesque and astonishing inequalities of wealth and income that we see in the modern world cannot possibly be reconciled with our being committed to this principle of the basic equality of persons. To throw this basic principle into relief, we confronted yesterday a position held by one Reverend Hastings Rashdall, a fellow of New College and an Anglican priest in the early years of the 20th century to the effect that, and again this is a quotation, an, an offensive quotation, the lower well-being, it may ultimately be the very existence of countless Chinamen or Negroes must be sacrificed that a higher life may be possible for a much smaller number of white men. We focused on that because that seemed to be a clear, very clear instance of the denial of what it is that we are asserting when we talk about the basic equality of humans. Uh, It was a sobering reminder of philosophical racism in the not so distant past, and that this position was held not just by a moral philosopher, who have been known to hold all sorts of curious and offensive positions, not just a moral philosopher, but a clergyman reminded us that although basic equality is sometimes characterized as God-given equality, something that I will pursue in detail in Lecture 5, still there's no guarantee that the principle will not be denied or distorted by men of God. So we have to come to terms with that possibility. Today's lecture is going to be perhaps the most technical of the lectures that I give because there are a number of logical issues about basic equality that I want to clear up at the outset before we begin what I think is going to be the most interesting uh, part of this week's lecture, which is on Thursday when we start looking at the properties or characteristics or capabilities that humans have on which their basic equality is predicated. That's what we'll do on Thursday, but before that, we want to clear some background issues away. When we talk about equality, one of the most important distinctions that we can make is between descriptive and prescriptive equality. Descriptive and prescriptive equality. Descriptive statements on the one hand that tell us how things are, prescriptive that tell us how things ought to be. Actually, if there are moral philosophers in the audience, I'm going to be a little bit naughty and use prescriptive as a general term to include normative, and to include evaluative, although strictly speaking there are nuanced differences between prescriptive and evaluative and normative, but they all have to do with how things ought to be, and that's what I want to capture under that heading as contrasted with the facts, the descriptions, the way things actually are on the descriptive side. Crudely, we can say if we like that people are equal, that's descriptive equality, or we can say that people ought to be equal, and then we are entering the realm of prescription. In the prescriptive realm, we advocate equality as an aim, or we respect it as a principle, or we treasure it as a value. In the descriptive realm, the descriptive realm, we notice its presence or its absence as a simple matter of fact. Now clearly what I have called non-basic principles of equality, like equality of opportunity, or the principle that condemns the present inequality of incomes, clearly these are prescriptive principles. They represent our convictions as uh, as to what ought to happen or what ought not to happen. There should be equality of opportunity. There should be less uh, inequality of incomes. Or let us arrange things so that economic inequality is diminishing rather than rising. Or we ought to have basic rights, these are all ought statements. Now, definitely there are descriptive statements associated with these propositions. A person or a philosopher who puts forward a normative or prescriptive principle has to have an eye on descriptive reality, on the descriptive reality that his prescription targets or evaluates. If you go around saying that incomes ought to be more equal then you need to have some idea of how the incomes are at the moment because that's what you're going to evaluate. That's what you're going to criticize. That's what you're going to urge to be changed. That's what you're going to target. So there's going to be a set of target descriptions so that you can work out how to apply your prescriptive principles. Also, this is more subtle, but it's very important indeed. A person who puts forward a prescriptive principle will usually have in mind a reason for that principle. A reason which comprises, perhaps among other things, a set of facts about the individuals who are in the range of the principle that makes it sensible or appropriate to assert this principle. So, you see, we have two kinds of descriptions in play. The target description and the state of affairs or the descriptive characteristics on which our principle is predicated. We say incomes ought to be more equal because there are no disparities between individual needs that could justify this degree of inequality. Okay, we're looking at the distribution and we're basing our prescriptive look on something about the individuals within the range. So at the surface level, equality prescriptions relate to descriptions in two ways. A prescriptive principle of equality is responsive to some set of facts as reason, and it targets some set of facts to evaluate description as reason and description as target. I want us to keep that clear. I believe the same is true of basic equality, but here's one thing I want to say. The distinction between surface level equality, surface level principles of equality, and foundational or basic principles, principles of basic equality. That is not a distinction between prescriptive and descriptive. I believe at both levels, we are in the realm of prescription. It is true that we talk about basic equality in an indicative phrase. We say people are one another's equals. People have equal dignity. But the mood of the phrase, the grammatical mood of the phrase is I think misleading. Evaluative ideas are often expressed indicatively. This is good, this is evil. We speak about it uh, in the indicative rather than necessarily using the language of ought or should and sometimes we say people ought to be respected as the equal beings that they already are and I think the equal beings that they are already are is a way of characterising a status proposition. And if it's not a legal status proposition, it's a moral status proposition and it already has prescriptive, evaluative, normative overtones. So that's the first thing I want to say about basic equality is that it too is prescriptive. Its prescriptions are a little bit more abstract than the surface level principles. It commands us in fundamental ways how we are to treat one another, and in particular, how we are to apply moral ideas to one another. Its prescriptivity is a little abstract, but it's prescriptivity nonetheless. So, for example, what does it prescribe? Well, number one, basic equality commands our equal considerability under moral principles. Everyone to count for one. Yeah? That's a demand that we make. if We're going to be cal- making calculations of the common good or utilitarian calculations, we are commanding that they be disciplined by that uh, logic. Everyone to count when we're considering the general good and everyone to count on the same basis. We can sum this up by saying that equality, basic equality commands a broad equality of concern. Number two, if we're talking about justice in any one of its forms, particularly the kind of broad social or distributive justice Elaborated by John Rawls in the 1970s and in countless other theories since, the principle of basic equality commands that all humans be treated as subjects of justice. Nobody is beyond justice. We are all entitled to the full benefit of the principles of justice and we are all subject as respondents to the principles of justice. This complements the point about equal concern. The equal concern with which we treat people is to be informed by principles of justice of which each person is to be the subject and the respondent and the beneficiary. That's a second set of demands that we make prescriptively under the heading of basic equality. Thirdly, the normativity of basic equality extends to our rights. Though basic equality may not dictate any particular rights, except perhaps it's very close link to the American constitutional norm of equal protection. It certainly mandates equal rights, or human rights, although people debate what those rights ought to be. And fourthly, basic equality is also a prescription of equality of respect, and perhaps also a fundamental equality of authority. Equal respect for us, as thinkers and agents, for example, that supports the freedom for the way we choose to organize our lives. We say, it's for me to organize my life, not for you. That's a prescriptive demand. And equal authority surfaces also in political arrangements like democracy, which begin from, from, even if they do not end with the doctrine that no one naturally has any more authority over any other human than that human has over her. We are all equal in our authority and we want a political system that in its fundamentals respects that basic equality. Nobody, whether down the end of the road or anywhere else, is born with the right to rule others. These are all prescriptive ideas associated with the subject that I'm talking about. Now in all of this, those principles target certain facts. They're associated with certain descriptions that we're concerned about, certain descriptions that we want to scrutinise certain descriptions that we want to to look at, the way in which people do benefit under the auspices of the common good, or the way in which they do or do not benefit from human rights, the way in which they are or are not treated in fact as subjects of justice, the way in which moral principles are applied to them even handedly or prejudicially. We're gonna look at the facts about that, targeting those facts with these principles. These are the target descriptions, the facts about the way we treat each other that normative principles of basic equality are concerned with. The facts that it is our role under these auspices to assess. Does the principle of basic equality also respond to certain facts about us? Are they Is basic equality based on certain facts about us? Does it respond to facts that provide reasons why it's appropriate or morally requisite for us to treat one another as equals. This is one of the things that's going to preoccupy us today and Thursday and actually next Monday as well and then probably on the following Tuesday, in, the, in other words, for the, rest, for the rest of the lectures one way or another. But, but here's a preliminary point. One might entertain some doubts about whether basic equality is based on any facts about human nature. We know that basic equality is supposed to operate as a major premise for much of our reasoning about surface level equalities. We say for example it is because we are one another's equals that we must be given fair equality of opportunity. It is because we are one another's equals that we ought to have concern about this high level of inequality at the surface. So we assume that the principle of basic equality is down there in the foundations, but if it's down there in the foundations, how can it have foundations? of its own, precisely because it is so deep and fundamental, precisely because it is basic, it's arguable that it cannot itself be based on anything else. Maybe it takes us to rock bottom. Maybe we have to start somewhere and that's where we start. And some indeed have treated the principle of basic equality as a sort of rock bottom principle, incapable of further justification. Some say this just because they believe that justification must stop somewhere. For example, the American philosopher Joel Feinberg offers the opinion that equal respect for human beings is in a sense groundless. It's an ultimate attitude, not itself justifiable in more ultimate terms. You either believe it or you don't. And some people say that not because of any great metaphysical view about what's ultimate, but just because they think it's a waste of time, pragmatically to trouble ourselves about the basis of this principle. Let's stop arguing about what it's based on, let's start looking to its implementation. Some say this because they think that predicating basic equality on certain facts about human nature would distort the role of the principle in our practical life. An example is Margaret MacDonald. Margaret MacDonald used to teach philosophy at Oxford and London in the 1940s and the 1950s, and she wrote about equality in a 1947 essay called Natural Rights. According to MacDonald, and she seems to be right, there's a radical difference between value utterances and descriptions. She said, value utterances are more like records of decisions, this is where I'm gonna stand, this is what I'm going to do. She says, to assert that all men are of equal worth is not to state a fact, but to choose a side, not to state a fact, but to choose a side. It announces, this is where I stand. She acknowledged, MacDonald acknowledged that somebody might say, yeah, but why do you choose to stand there? What is it about humans that makes this a sensible place to stand? And she responded defiantly, I affirm that no natural characteristic constitutes a reason for the assertion that all human beings are of equal worth. She went on, do we then decide without reason? Are decisions determined arbitrarily, by chance or by whim? No, she says, but the problem is a little bit like asking somebody why do they love their child? Or why do they love their spouse or partner? They just do. She quotes from Montaigne, from Montaigne's essay on friendship. If a man urged me to tell him wherefore I loved him, I feel it cannot be expressed but by answering, because it is you. Now some of us, so the idea is that some of us find ourselves committed to a moral outlook organised around basic equality. We may try to attract others to it but we don't do it by pointing to any further property or fact that is going to compel other people to line up with us in in the same way. I believe Margaret MacDonald is absolutely right when she says there is no factual implication that's going to compel a belief in human equality. We're not looking to bridge the gap between description and prescription. We're not looking to bridge the is-ought gap or throw a rope across between fact and value. But saying we are not compelled by the facts to take any particular position on human equality doesn't mean that the position we do decide to take has no relation to facts about ourselves. It may have a relation to facts about ourselves even though it's not a a logically compelling uh, relation. And it may need to supervene upon such facts just in order to make sense even as a decision. I suspect, by the way, that what I just said is true of general principles like basic equality. It may not be true of particular affections uh, as in the Montaigne case or as in Margaret MacDonald saying, why do I love my child? But a general principle has to have a scope. It has to have some apparatus associated with it that allows us to apply it to an indeterminate, open-ended array of cases. We have to understand that our principle of basic equality applies to humans, not teapots, and we have to have, therefore, some way of managing the principle and therefore some sense of what makes sense of the principle. I'm now gonna mention a more profound and challenging version of the same position. A more profound, certainly a more obscure defender of the claim that a principle of equality need not be predicated upon any descriptive property about human nature is Hannah Arendt. Arendt is a former Gifford lecturer Um, and someone whose work, for whose work I developed a decided affection when I was at Edinburgh University in the 1980s. We had something called the Hannah Arendt Reading Group which met for every week for three or four years. It was a, a glorious reading group. We went through almost every book in her obscure opus, meeting, as I remember, mostly in my room, in the politics department in Baklu Place. Hannah Arendt offers a political concept of equality. She suggests that we might adopt, make a decision to adopt a principle of treating one another as equals, not because of any natural similarities between us but because such a principle would make possible a form of political community that we could not otherwise have. By nature, we may be utterly different from one another in background and abilities and in character, but by political convention we hold ourselves. We decide to hold ourselves to be one another's equals. We are not born equal, she says, but we become equals as members of a community on the strength of our decision to guarantee ourselves and each other mutual equal rights. Like everyone else, she of course believes there are differences and similarities among human beings. She says some of the differences arouse dumb hatred mistrust, and discrimination, while some of the more striking similarities lead us to recoil from our common biology. But she insists there doesn't seem to be anything in our common humanity that compels any moral or practical response. She's famous for saying that in the Holocaust, from which she fled to America in 1940, the world found nothing sacred in the abstract nakedness of being human. The world found nothing sacred in the abstract nakedness of being human. And so she determined that basic equality could not be just simply based on human biology. What should we say about this? Well, I have a great respect for Arendt's views, but I actually think she's misleading us here about the basis of her position. It's true that she finds it convenient to pretend that she thinks we could just hold a group of entities to be one another's political equals, irrespective of what these entities are like, but that proposition, which in itself is slightly mad, as though we could just decide to treat trees, tigers, teapots, and teenagers as one another's equals for political purposes, I don't think is what Arendt really thinks. Her work makes it clear that we can be held to be one another's equals because of certain facts about what we are like. Only those are difficult facts to get at. Like MacDonald, she rightly acknowledges that we're not compelled logically on the basis of any set of facts to uphold any view about basic equality. But there's no reason, I think, to be scared off by that. In Arendt's thought, I'm sorry I'm spending a little bit of time on this, but I, I love her work so much, In Arendt's thought, there is something distinctive, indeed something momentous, about human nature. That distinctive something is what she calls in her essay, What is Freedom? The faculty of freedom itself. The sheer capacity that humans have to begin things, unprecedented things. The sheer capacity to begin which animates and inspires all human activities and is the hidden source of the production of all great and beautiful things. When a human comes into the world, the prospect of new beginnings, willful new beginnings come into the world. She says that the birth of every human represents the possibility of a new beginning and occurrence in the world once again for the seven billionth time of new beginnings in the world, of the possibility of interrupting the life process with something new. She says that something of this capacity for new beginnings, she calls it natality, from natal, like neonatal, natality, is present in all that humans do, political and non-political. It's a supreme gift which only man of all the earthly creatures seems to have received, of which we can find traces and signs in almost all human activities. It is a potential, and it's not always realized, but you never know which of these newborns is going to be the one that begins something new. And her ontology of the human seems to have this capacity there in each of us as a permanent possibility. So Arendtian natality, this permanent possibility of world-making initiative, new beginnings in the nature and condition of man is the fact about us on which her commitment to equality supervenes. It's a relational fact because it concerns what we can do with others. It's not a natural or biological fact. It has a sort of metaphysical force to that. And there's nothing that I'm suggesting that these facts on which our equality is based have to be empirical. When we get to lecture five, we'll be looking at a whole host of non-empirical facts, as many people believe non-empirical facts about human beings, their relation to God, for example. Hers is not religious, but it's complicated. It's metaphysical, it's transcendent, and she thinks it's of the utmost importance. Now, in the handout that I've given you, I've indicated that we have to think some of this through under the auspices of a technical concept that philosophers use. This is under heading three, called supervenience. It's an irritating concept, but let me try to take you through it and out the other other side. Supervenience is a relationship between two types of properties. In the philosophy of mind, people assume that mental properties like thoughts, ideas, and dreams supervene upon neural properties or physical properties of the nervous system. So there can't be a change in your mental properties unless there is also a change in your neural or brain state properties. It's not reductionist, but it just assumes that um, there is some underlying basis that the mental properties are either um, epiphenomena of or responsive to. In moral philosophy we say two actions can't be different in their value unless there is some factual difference between them. Or two items, two pieces of pottery, can't be different in their value unless unless one of the items is different from the other. If There's a difference of value, there must be a difference of characteristics. So supervenience kind of assumes that the value is responsive to some fact uh, about the world or a fact about the items. It's actually, putting it that way is not quite true. Jonathan Dancy, who taught philosophy at Reading, has pointed out, actually Simon Blackburn's comment contains this as well, sometimes one moral difference or one value difference may supervene on another value difference. We say, well, this action was good, that action wasn't. Why? Because this action was generous that action wasn't. Okay, so we've gone from a a general evaluative term to a more specific evaluative term, but then we will have to ask, well, what makes it generous? We say, well, and then we come to the level of fact, this action was a donation to a worthy cause, that one wasn't. So eventually we reach some fact about the action on which its goodness and its generosity um, supervene. It's a highly technical idea, and I don't want to spend much more than about another 90 seconds on it, Its application in the moral case is quite different from its application in the philosophy of mind case. In the philosophy of mind case, it's based on some sort of theory about the relationship between mental events and neural events. In the case of the moral philosophy uh, example, it's based on the thought that we make the evaluations we do and the prescriptions that we do for reasons, and those reasons reference facts in the world. So um, in both areas, it's usually defended intuitively but it's, uh, it's a complicated idea, I'm just mentioning it here because it's one way of understanding the second association of a principle with factual statements. First association is it targets certain facts and the second association is that it's based on or it's a response to certain facts and I want to assume that the principle of basic equality has those two relations to these facts. Now, can I get even more technical and irritating just for a minute or so? I said if this is a good bottle and that is a bad bottle, there must be some other distinction between them that makes that true, right? This is the sparkling water, sparkling good, still bad, or this, is, uh, this has less water than the other, or some, there must be some difference of this. So far, so good. But what about equality? Does equality have to be based on some underlying value? If I, say, if I say x is valuable, then by the supervenient thesis, this must be based on some descriptive characteristic of x. OK? And if I say x and y differ in their value, like the bottles, then I must be able to point to some factual difference between them on which the value difference supervenes. So far, so good. If I say these bottles have the same value, am I assuming they must share some property? Well, maybe, but not necessarily. A piece of furniture and a bottle of wine may have the same value, but they have it for for different reasons. So if you're talking, particularly if you're talking about what I referred to yesterday as continuous equality, that there are no important differences between human beings. You're not necessarily pointing to some affirmative property on which that equality is based. So technically, if we were to be pedantic, we would say that human equality in that sense doesn't necessarily have to presuppose some property that we all share, although I'm going to proceed on the basis that it does. Remember I said yesterday that equality can be a negative, continuous position or an affirmative, distinctive position. We can say, look, our commitment to equality means that we deny that there are any major discontinuities in the human range. Yeah? Whatever we think about humans and animals, we just say it, for humans at least there are no major discontinuities. Now that's asserting a negative. Right? And probably in order to warrant that assertion, we have to have some picture about what humans are like that bolsters our confidence that that assertion of a negative makes sense. So practically and pragmatically, maybe even this negative continuous principle of equality is predicated on some feature that people have. Certainly the more affirmative, distinctive principle, which says humans are one another's equals, On a level and on a plane that raises them high above the rest of creation, that's certainly going to involve maintaining some important distinction between humans and other animals. So there are just these fiddly little issues about supervenience that I wanted to bring your attention to. Remember Hannah Arendt's insistence that equality was not based on anything. One point she might have been making is that talk of equality supervening on some property misleads us as to the order of argument, as though we first notice the property and then we assert the prescription, the prescriptive equality. We first notice that men are rational and then we say therefore they must be equal or we first notice that all people have a moral sense, and then we proceed to maintaining their equality. And maybe what she was saying is it's not necessarily that way round. We may begin with some conviction about equality, and that informs our search for some underlying property. Sounds a bit question-begging, but it's, it's, it's connected with a thesis that some philosophers have called shapelessness. What do I mean by shapelessness? If you just take a, a regular predicate like courage, we know that predicate seems to face in two descriptions. On the one hand, it describes a certain characteristic, a certain steadfastness in the face of danger. And on the other hand, it evaluates that highly. Right? So it describes something, and it's, a, it's, it's a term that combines description and prescription. It's what we call a thick moral term has a thick descriptive element to it, as well as its positive evaluative loading. Now, some people have said, well, that might be true, but it may not be possible to separate those two elements and still be left with something intelligible on both sides. The characteristics that descriptively define courage for us may not make sense apart from the evaluative attitude that unites them. It's as though you were trying to find a description that made something funny without talking about its funniness or it, uh, without talking about our sense of humor. Sometimes if you peel away the evaluative or prescriptive element, you're left with something that looks amorphous and shapeless, that only kind of makes sense even as a description in the light of your, um, in the light of your prescriptive commitment. And it's possible, and I'm going to uh, rely on the possibility, that much of our thinking about equality is like that. We come with the conviction that we are one another's equals and that informs the way that we look for and it informs what we say about the properties on which equality may be based on. There's no necessary priority of the one over the other, let alone any logical compulsion to move from one to the other. So it may well be that seeing people in a certain way may be inseparable from resolving to treat them as one another's equals, and somebody who is not resolved to treat them as his equals may complain that he really doesn't get the description under which we are one another's equals. Something like that may be true. All right. Now... All of this is going to be helpful for Thursday's lecture, when we have to not just identify a property or set of properties on which equality is based, but make sense of looking at those properties in a particular way. So suppose we say equality is based on human rationality. We all understand that people are rational to different degrees. It looks as though the egalitarian is determined to look past the degrees of rationality and to look at the basic element of rationality itself, that way of looking at things has to be motivated. And I I don't want to recapitulate Lecture 3 before I give it, but that's the kind of work we're going to have to do and uh, the kind of work to which this business about shapelessness is going to be relevant. But that's getting ahead of ourselves. I said, I would talk in this lecture about Jeremy Bentham's famous adage, everybody to count for one, nobody for more than one. You know who Jeremy Bentham was, end of the 18th century, beginning of the 19th century, a great and batty utilitarian, responsible single-handedly for a massive number of changes in British public administration and for getting rid of uh, a significant number of the idiocies that afflicted the conduct of politics and the conduct of public policy in his day. He believed that we should weigh up all public policies and laws on the basis of whether they promote happiness and whether they promote the greatest happiness of the greatest number and that meant that we had to keep a kind of ledger of who benefited and who suffered under any given principle and only adopt those principles or measures or laws where the net amount of suffering was less than the net amount of benefit to people. We would keep a ledger, we would trace all the suffering and all the benefit to each individual and in that process, in that calculus, in that utilitarian calculus, everybody should count for one. Nobody should count for more than one, right? So the queen's happiness or the queen's pain was to count for exactly the same as the pain or happiness of the most depraved beggar in, on the streets of Southbridge or whatever. There were no superior beings, that was Bentham's position. Utilitarianism is not a wonderful system we have many difficulties with, but in their foundations they were furiously committed to that and they insisted that there would be massive changes in British law if we were to stay true to that adage because they insisted critically that an awful lot of laws had been justified and enacted by simply refusing to consider the benefits or the suffering of large classes of people. It's actually surprisingly difficult to find a source for the Bentham slogan. I mean he wrote so much and there are people as we speak maddening themselves still trying to transcribe his idiot handwriting and all the mad hatter proposals he made. There's a whole industry down at the University of London that does this alongside Bentham's auto icon that is his mummified body. Preserved in a cabinet there. Um, Surprisingly difficult to find a source for the Bentham slogan. David Ritchie observed in his 1903 book, Natural Rights, that the phrase is most known from its quotation by John Stuart Mill. I've got that quotation there for you. The maxim seems to belong, Ritchie says, to the unwritten doctrine of the utilitarian master. Bentham was kind of a secular godfather to John Stuart Mill. Bentham did state the maxim more Concretely, in the following passage, he said, The happiness of the most helpless pauper, poor person, constitutes as large a portion of the universal happiness as that of the most opulent members of the community. And Henry Sidgwick said something similar the good of any one individual is of no more importance from the point of view of the universe than the good of any other. So it's a very strong assertion of basic equality so far as the disciplining of the utilitarian calculations are concerned, so far as disciplining what we economists might now call cost-benefit uh, cost-benefit analysis. John Stuart Mill offered the following gloss, and I think you have this on the, um, the song sheet that I gave you, uh, so we can all sing along. Uh, Bentham's formula is glossed by J.S. Mill, it may be more correctly described as supposing that equal amounts of happiness are equally desirable, whether felt by the same or by different persons. This, however, is not a premise needful to support the principle of utility but the very principle itself. If there is any anterior principle implied, it can be no other than this that the truths of arithmetic are applicable to the valuation of happiness as of all other measurable quantities. It seems to take the wind out of the sails a little bit and make it makes it slightly, slightly trivial. When the point is put like that, it's hard to see what it would mean to count the happiness of some beings for double. Or rather, one can imagine that, but it would just be obviously corrupt, obviously, obviously, obviously wrong. Some people... I have colleagues in philosophy and law who say people are entitled to put a thumb on the scales for their own loved ones, and to count the happiness or suffering of their loved ones more than they count the happiness or suffering of other people's loved ones. But they say that's not really a refutation of the Benthamite, that's really a story about how we are to respond to the Benthamite calculus. When you read Hastings' Rashdale, you get the impression that he thinks, objectively, that the happiness of a small number of white men counts for more than the suffering or the happiness of a much larger number of um, Chinamen or Negroes to use his offensive terminology. And we get the impression from Rashtal that he thinks that if only they were rational, the Chinamen and Negroes would recognize this as well. This isn't just sort of uh, agent relative to to the white men. At best, what Bentham's aphorism does is discipline the way we apply the consequentialist calculus. It argues against double counting. It argues, against, uh, it argues for equal rights and respect. And you might say, well, do we need a fancy principle of equality to persuade us that double counting is wrong? Mill says that if there is anything to Bentham's principle, it can mean no more than that the, that the truths of arithmetic are applicable to the valuation of happiness. Mill's gloss on the Bentham slogan reminds us of the possibility that so far from being momentous, the principle of basic equality may be trivial. It may not tell us anything substantial. All it tells us is is that if we do have substantial principles, then we ought to apply those principles impartially. If we do have substantial principles, then we ought to apply those principles impartially. And maybe that's a good thing to be reminded of, but it hardly justifies six Gifford lectures, that would be the worry that I'm addressing, this theme of the triviality or the redundancy of equality is one that a number of philosophers have pursued. Consider for example the Oxford philosopher J.R. Lucas on the idea of equal respect. He says, well, we may call it if we like the principle of equal respect, but in this phrase it's the word respect. Respect for each man's humanity, respect for him as a human being that is doing the logical work. The word equality adds nothing to the argument and is altogether OTOs. We may believe that we ought to respect humans, and what this means is that we ought to respect you, and ought to respect you and each person individually, and we ought to apply that principle of respect impartially without fear and favor, no double counting. But that's all the work that equality is doing, according to J.R. Lucas. I'm in agreement with Venet Haksar's response to all of this, which takes us back to Reverend Hastings Rashdal. He says you can ditch the word equality if you like, but then you may find it more difficult to convey a substantive point that we really do want to make, namely the point that there have been in human history people who tried to instruct us to take the good of certain individuals more seriously than the good of others. Rashdal is an example. And we may want to con- convey our steadfast opposition We may want to convey our steadfast opposition to that perspective and the word equality is as good a strategy as any of conveying what it is that we are committing ourselves to and conveying what it is we are committing ourselves against. (coughs) It's natural, in other words, to express the denial of the rational position using the term equality. Certainly we could formulate our convictions using different words We could say that respect is due to humanity as such, but equality has the extra and important resonance of indicating the sort of heritage we are struggling against. We believe in a profound respect due to humanity, and we maintain that belief in the face of those who claim that humanity admits of unequal degrees. So I'm not convinced by this triviality thesis. I'm trying to give it a fair run for its money, Among philosophers, the triviality view is perhaps best known from the work of Joseph Raz in his book, The Morality of Freedom. Joseph Raz, as you should know, is a most eminent legal and moral philosopher. He used to be professor of legal philosophy at Oxford. Now in his retirement from Oxford, he teaches at King's College London and Columbia Law School in the city of New York and Raz has suggested that a great deal of talk about equality could be eliminated if we were more thoughtful about what our principles require of us. So he believes it's redundant, largely, largely redundant. Many claims are made that seem to be about equality, but on scrutiny, they turn out to have little or nothing to do with equality at all. When, for example, this is not an example Raz uses, but when, for example, Jesus of Nazareth told us to feed the hungry, take in the stranger, minister to the sick, and visit those who were in prison, saying that insofar as we did such things for the least of these my brethren, we did it for him. When Jesus said that, it might seem to be a proposition about the equal claims of everybody upon us, including those who are apparently the least considerable, but it really just is a proposition about the importance of responding to need. You should respond to need in the case of this person, respond to need in the case of that person, respond to need in the case of the other person. You should do so impartially, but you don't need the word equality to convey that commitment. Often he says what are alleged to be principles of equality simply represent a determination to apply moral principles consistently, that is, to treat each human's interest, maybe each animal's interest, just as they respectively deserve to be Treated. Well, I have no doubt of Raz's syntactical capacities. I know that he can take any given set of moral positions and restate them without using the string of letters E-Q-U-A-L-I-T-Y, we could take out equality and find some way of expressing these positions. But it's not at all clear why we should want to do that or why it matters. Maybe in a world of unlimited time and among people of microscopic moral discernment, we wouldn't need principles of equality or inequality or even principles that use words like species and human. We would just examine each situation very closely and figure out what was going on. We'd examine each entity and see what its interests demanded, what its needs are, and figure out how to respect it whatever we came across or had dealings with, whatever we had to decide or whenever we had to decide about actions that might have an impact upon any other entity, whether it was a mountain or a fish or a human, we would just, that's what we would do, we would do that successively for each human, each adult, each child, each man, each woman, each cat, each dog, each fish, each rock and so on. We'd still have principles. But the principles that would now express themselves by tying very tightly, very tightly between the the content of the principle and what the principle was an immediate response to. So they would say, if you find something thirsty, give it water. If you find something bleeding, try and stop the bleeding. If you find something suffering, try and stop the suffering. and you wouldn't have to use words like human and the range of humans and equality or anything like that our principles would just simply refer to characteristics very directly related to what the principle was requiring not characteristics referring to species one principle might tell us if something or someone is hurting then do what you can to alleviate the pain a principle of first aid might say if the thing you're looking at has a limb that is broken then set and immobilize that limb if you can yeah And again, you wouldn't need to talk about what the appropriate range of this principle was. If someone or something would benefit from friendship, or if the person or the thing is a stranger in a strange land, then take it in. If it would profit from care or education, then furnish it with that opportunity. These, says Raz, are the principles we should follow. We should apply them rigorously and consistently And if we do that, we will no doubt end up applying them to those whom Jesus of Nazareth described as the least of these my brethren. Only we wouldn't need any notion of brethren. We wouldn't need any notion of the brotherhood of man. We would just be responding to this or that need, this or that interest when it cropped up. Raz comes close to this position. I don't want to misrepresent him, but he comes close to this sort of nominalism in his views about Equality. And I must say, I have some attraction to this approach. I'm going to try and explain why, then explain why it's a mistake to have attraction to this approach, and then I'm going to finish. Um, because of this business about natural theology, there's always an element of the sermon in these lectures. So, my text is the parable of the Good Samaritan. You know the story, I hope. A certain man went down from Jerusalem to Jericho and fell among thieves who stripped him of his raiment and wounded him and departed, leaving him half dead. A certain Samaritan, as he journeyed, came where that man was, and when he saw him, he had compassion on him. He went to him and he bound up his wounds, pouring in oil and wine, first century, first aid and set him on his own beast, and brought him to an inn, and took care of him. And on the morrow when he departed, he took out two pence, and gave them to the host, and said unto him, Take care of him, and whatsoever thou spendest more, when I come again, I will repay thee. you remember Margaret Thatcher making the point that it was a good thing that the Good Samaritan had money, and had earned money, because otherwise he couldn't have been charitable. This, you'll remember, is... Jesus' response to the question posed by an irritating lawyer, who is my neighbor? And instead of giving, in response to that question, a reiteration of traditional divisions, the lawyer is given an answer which cuts straight across established ethnic and religious lines. From the standpoint of Jewish law, the Samaritan was definitely not a neighbor of the man he assisted, assuming that that man was uh, Jewish. The story might be compelling enough if it contrasted the helping behavior of a stranger with the neglectful behavior of a priest. I omitted that from the story. But in the words of Herbert Fingeret, Jesus substitutes a Samaritan, a geographical neighbor, one who was despised and hated by the Jews of his time as being uncouth, unclean, immoral, and largely heretical. As Peter Winch has observed, one might as well tell a story about a Palestinian coming to the aid of an Israeli on the road from Jerusalem to Jericho. One other commentator, Philip Esler, has noted that there is nothing artificial in imposing a case where the next person to pass by was a non-Israelite. That's what you might expect in life, especially if you're on the road. There's no telling who you'll come across when you're on the road, and yet such such a natural possibility brings complete chaos to the conceptual and social framework implied in the lawyer's question. For our purposes, And as I said, this is where I have some sympathy for Raz's approach, for Raz's particularist approach. What is remarkable about the Samaritan in the story is that he simply applies moral principles of aid and first aid to the individual he confronts in an immediate, no-fuss sort of way. He doesn't try to answer any of the traditional questions. What sort of person is this? Is this a member of my community bound to me by communal ties? Is this my responsibility? Is this one of my neighbors in the strict and traditional sense of neighborness? doesn't ask any of those questions. doesn't run down any sort of communitarian checklist. He just applies principles of need and principles of aid. This individual is bleeding. This individual is wounded. This individual needs care, perhaps for days. The glory of the Samaritan's response is that it is uncontaminated by any sense of communitarian divisions in the human range. This is a profoundly anti-communitarian story. So far so good. Raz, I think, might ask us to go a step further. He might say the story doesn't need to be interpreted even in the light of any proposition about human equality, which is one way of looking at it, right? The Samaritan just responded to the predicament of a human equal on the road, not a Jewish equal but a human equal on the road. Or indeed it doesn't need to be understood in the light of any proposition about human anything, human worth, human dignity, human status, none of that stuff. It's just the story about immediate and impartial response to bleeding or to wounds or to things that need to be moved out of danger. Maybe if the Samaritan came across a dog by the side of the road hit by a car. There were no cars on the road from Jerusalem to Jericho in Jesus' time, but this is supposed to inform our attitudes today so we can introduce cars if we want. If there's a dog lying hit by a car and left for dead, then perhaps the Samaritan would impartially apply the same principles, staunch the bleeding of the dog, bind up its wounds, carry it to a place of safety to respond to those imperatives r says you don't need any doctrine of equality you don't need any doctrine of a human range or human worth or human dignity all you need is just the impartial determination to follow the principles that you have where they take you <clears throat> and maybe that's right certainly i have said that the human egalitarian need not be troubled by any fundamental distinction between humans and other animals up to a point up to a point But it may be important nevertheless for the Samaritan to be prepared to respond to certain distinctively human characteristics as well, which just wouldn't apply in the case of the dog. I'm not saying we should neglect dogs, but caring for a human is different. If the human individual by the side of the road is conscious, then the Samaritan should try to explain what he's doing. The Samaritan should try to allay the individual's anxiety for the immediate future because humans have this remarkable characteristic to project project themselves fearfully or hopefully forward as well as backward in memory. He might have to tell him who will take care of the bill at the inn. If the individual offers his gratitude, the Samaritan should listen and respect that. There is likely to be somebody to call. some loved one that needs to be got in touch with, and so on. Whatever we call it, it's part of the principle of human equality that needs and attributes concerns and occasions for respect like these are always likely to present themselves in the case of humans and in the case of every single human. And for this reason, we do have to be on human alert, even if we are not on community alert, when we come across these various predicaments on the road. <clears throat> if there is any communitarian element in our response, I guess it may be to find out about particular customs, maybe even particular taboos that may affect the person we're trying to help. Is he a Jehovah's Witness who has particular views about blood transfusions? Or if he is beyond help, what are the, what's the position of his people on burial? on the disposal of human remains. But this is an exception that proves the rule. For all humans, there are likely to be answers to these questions. For all humans, the thing about humans is they do have customs, they do have burial beliefs, they do have views about these things, and it's important when you're dealing with a human, any human, to find out what those views are and to respect them. For all these reasons, then, I say, and this is my opposition to Raz's position, Human beings are a morally interesting kind of entity. Human beings are a morally interesting kind of entity and the idea of special attention to humans just because they are human is at the very least a morally necessary heuristic or strategy which you take when you go out on the road. We can't work as Raz urges us to work in a wholly nominalistic way looking in detail, starting at scratch, at each being, each entity that we come across. We always work with types of entities, even when we're examining some individual, like the least of these, my brethren, or the man who fell among thieves. So human beings are a morally interesting kind, and basic human equality is at the very least the morally necessary heuristic. Whatever we do about the dogs, we need to be on human alert when we come across various predicaments on the road. Now a thinker like Hastings Rashdahl might say that's a mistake. He says you ought to be on white man alert, yeah, because that's a significant type of being that you have to be on the lookout for when you're dealing, proposing to deal with people's interests, because that's where the crucial differences will show themselves. He believes that when we're considering the well-being of humans, we have to consider, in principle, differences in capacity for value and well-being, different sorts of relation to value, different sorts of agency, and so on. He suggests, as we saw offensively yesterday, that race may be a good guide to all of these with which these different kinds of capacity are aligned. We think he's wrong about that. We think being on human alert is the superior heuristic. Remember, too, that this is not just about one-on-one transactions like the Samaritan and the the man who fell among thieves, not just one-on-one transactions on the road between Jerusalem and Jericho. In moral life, but particularly in political life, we are dealing with large populations and we need coarser generalizations that (coughs) that will direct our attention to the effect of the principles and policies that we apply to the people who are affected in our policy and in our administration. For the passage I quoted from Rashdall was from his chapter on justice, not just personal ethics. And Rashdall was teaching young men at New College in Oxford how to administer the empire. And that definitely involved the question of how to bring the needs and expectations of countless Chinamen and Negroes under imperial authority into relation with the refined interests of a much smaller number of white men living in holywell street or in bloomsbury or forgive me on morningside road you might say that well rashdale is at least right to ask whether there are discontinuities of this kind different kinds of capacity for well-being and whether they line up with any other broad human characteristics but when the stakes are so high that is all the more reason for giving clarity and emphasis to our resounding answer No, there are no such great differences of capacity for well-being or differences of moral agency or responsiveness to value or basic rationality among humans. All humans are equal in these fundamental respects and anyone who goes out on the road, whether to administer an empire or to journey down to Jericho, had better go armed with that principle of basic equality. That's where I want to end uh, this evening. On Thursday, we will begin the process of now examining the actual capacities and actual characteristics on which uh, basic equality is predicated. Thank you very much indeed.
0: Thank you very much for, for, for the excellent lecture. Uh, before I open it up for questions, I want to have a bit of reflection on what has been said. Um, for me, there are two main points I want to take away from this evening. Coming from the business school, uh, it's been interesting to reflect upon what utilitarianism means for people in business, for example. And the whole idea about economics taking the GDP as a way to measure success came to light And I thought to myself, what would the world look like if we measured happiness instead? And if Jeremy Benton started with the idea of happiness, probably Nicolas Sarkozy has been reading a lot about his work, that he started this initiative about how to measure happiness and has brought together a number of scholars to think more about that. So that's on one hand. Then on the other hand is the issue of, um, Heston Rashdell. I, I sat in yesterday, listened to, to the conversation and, and the discussion, and today again it came to the fore. And I was thinking to myself either he was right or I'm thick. In the sense that coming after the presentation and also the sequencing, I don't think this is the coincidence. The university didn't plan it to make sure we have a Negro, in quote, uh, <laughs> coming to speak uh, or host the event. So um, that also throws a lot of questions around the role of discourse and how things are framed, also inform how people begin to see the world, and it also reveals the power inherent in discourse and such narratives. So to a large extent, I see I see reasons, or, uh, I tend to accept the view um, he mentioned earlier about the construct, um, constructivist alternatives, which I thought was a nice way to capture some of the things happening, in the sense that... Um, so the issues around equality could also be a problem of discourse beyond just rationality and logic. And which leads me to the final point, um, since yesterday we were talking about the human, and um, I've been thinking about you know, who, who is a human, okay? Uh, it's still, um, we're still quiet about it, we're not engaged. Probably the other lectures may want to, uh, can unravel what that means. And the other question also is, What makes humans unique and what does it take to be human? And I think these questions might be very critical to the issue around equality. And if you say humans are morally rational or morality defines humanity, then there are also questions about people who don't have the capability to to reason. So for example, what happens to the unborn child? Uh, What happens to to people who have lost their cognitive abilities and they still human? And these are some of the questions going through my head. And I guess some other people here also have other questions um, going through their heads. Um, but I'm not, nonetheless, I've learned um, one or two words this evening. One is shapelessness. And to appreciate the fact that shapelessness is also part of philosophy is, is quite interesting. And the other one is um, natality. Uh, and I will go away to, to look up uh, what they really mean. So please. Uh, <laughs> May I ask you to join me in expressing our appreciation of uh, Jeremy Waldron's uh, excellent lecture?
2: (laughs) Thank you you for your wonderful presentation. Um, This kind of extends back to Arend's point where World War II definitely showed us what was absolutely stark and naked and possibly or definitely inexcusable. But there are also instances, for instance, there was a small village in France who sheltered um, a number of Jews. And when interviewed later uh, and asked, you know, why did you do this, they simply responded, uh, why would you not? Kind of with absolute incredulity. But it leads back to the idea of where exactly are we putting our stakes and how we want to feasibly pursue the principle of equality. Yeah. Part of your presentation seemed to indicate the idea that principles might not be enough. In fact, principles, if we distribute them, will never be able to cover the kind of range that instills the moral decisions that we want people to make. So I suppose the question, if anything, would be where do we put our stakes? Uh, What do you think we should rely on to kind of cover the ground that we want the principle of equality to, to perform?
1: Yeah, yeah. No, thank you very much. That's a, that's a um, it's actually a troubling question. I think it's a serious question the, uh, that defenders of equality have to respond to. Just for ease of explication, I've been assuming that we're talking about a principle of basic equality, although I've tried to acknowledge that there is a cluster of ideas here, including uh, doctrines of uh, equal human worth, doctrines of human dignity. And I think what that conveys is that no single principle No formulated principle, even if it's Dworkin's equal concern and respect, is really going to do the work here. We we are talking, as MacDonald indicated, about an outlook, about an outlook that can be, of which you can catch glimpses in a given principle, and which a principle may, with all the inadequacies of words, help sum up. But what we are looking for is to explicate, explain, present the outlook. Uh, that is definitive of this um, conviction about basic equality. So I entirely accept the notion that simply having a a six- or eight-word principle or some fancy concept like the categorical imperative or anything like that isn't really going to get it. What we really want to do is to bring together a cluster of more and more articulate ideas, loosely related, that kind of define the outlook that is associated with human egalitarianism.
0: Okay, there's a question in front
3: here. <clears throat> Thank you. Um, could I just ask for a, a clarification on the notion of supervening properties, as you yes. used it? And make a distinction between what you might call properties that are inherent in something and properties derived that derive from that object's relationship to something. I mean, you used the example of the two bottles on the table. Um, I mean, if once they've been emptied and taken away, they could be absolutely identical in all sorts of ways. But you drank out of one. And some of your fans from this lecture room might want that as a souvenir and be able to say, the holy water, this, water. Is, <laughs> this is the bottle the Gifford Lecture drank yeah. out of, yeah. and be able to auction that on eBay for a significant sum right. that the other bottle could not actually uh, achieve. Now, right. They are absolutely identical in terms of the properties inherent in them, but one has a relationship to something else. Yes. I just wonder if the notion of the supervening properties, as you discussed it, um, needs to make a distinction between those two types of property or whether in your eyes they're exactly the same and boil down to exactly the sameness.
1: Right, right. Thank you. Um, certainly the relevant um, differences may well be differences in relational Attributes, and I think this is—I mean—it's not a good example because nobody's going to sell these bottles on eBay. Although, if they are, I have several other bottles they could <laughs> they could sell as well. But particularly, you know, when we come to um, when we come to lecture five, and we do consider uh, the the idea of being equal in the sight of God, there are some views that are just like the views that you mentioned which is whatever we are inherently like, God has consecrated us as equals. God has, in that sense, touched each person and it's that touch or the love of God or some relational fact like that rather than an inherent attribute or capacity. And I don't want to rule that out at all and certainly I believe that that, that's within the range of supervenience, supervenience as well. So I much appreciate the chance to clarify that.
0: There's a question there.
1: Hi there, thank you. Um, I think you've kind of tackled it in what you're talking about, but I guess um, what I need to be
2: made more clear to myself is that when I guess you're trying to um, encourage this as a, something we should all believe in and that something most of us probably do already believe in, but I'm wondering if you think that's because it is a principle which is um, beneficial to the formation of society, and that's why we should believe in it, or because it's something greater than that that just is, and therefore,
1: you know, it's on some sort of religious um, grounds, just because it is correct, or because it is useful societally. Yeah, yeah, I think um, there is space in between those two. That is, we we might think it's just what the world requires of us in terms of how things really are uh, objectively. And that may have a religious basis, or it may not. But if it doesn't, it doesn't necessarily reduce to it being in the interests of society. Um, we have to be very careful with the, with the possible explanation of being in the interests of society. Because when we were, if we were trying to explicate that, if we were trying to lay out that thesis, we'd have to say, well, what do we mean by society? Do we mean that every member of society benefits And when we're doing that cost-benefit analysis, are we already committed to treating everybody as one and nobody as more than one? It would look as though that social thesis would be too close to the surface to operate as a basis for the principle of uh, equality. But that may be too quick, because if it's something like an Arendtian principle of political organization, it could be operating at that level. So I'm assuming, and actually, I mean, it's a very good way of putting it, I'm assuming that we are trying to respond to some way in which things really are, or if we're adopting the constructivist approach, the Arendt or the McDonald approach, we believe that our decision is so fundamental that whether anybody benefited from this or not, we would still think it was very important to adopt this decision or to notice this this fact. And I'll say a little bit about that again in lecture five when I talk about the peculiar sort of objectivity that's sometimes associated with this principle. Thank you.
0: Okay. I thought somebody raised it, somebody. Yeah. Hi, this question might have been better suited in the, the first lecture. And it's about equality and also being qualified. So I'm an engineering student and I spend most of my time in the library trying not to talk to people. And I regard myself as unqualified regarding the, the election that's coming up. So I wanted to, to hear your thoughts on that one.
1: Yeah. Un- unqualified as a voter? Exactly,
0: yeah. I have no idea. I have a only vague idea about all the main parties stand for, given to me by the, kindly by the BBC News, and that's the extent of my political knowledge.
1: Shame on you. Um, so, <laughs> you know, people say, well, we qualify everybody as voters, irrespective of their state of knowledge. It's not quite true. We insist that everybody be educated. We make education compulsory to a certain extent and available to a further extent. So our determination to enfranchise everybody, within limits, um, our determination to enfranchise anybody rests on a certain faith that people have the ability to inform themselves and that they have the elementary education that would enable them to grasp the broad basis of the positions. We assume that beyond that it's up to each person how much they think they need to know in order to um, express a preference. And that indicates something that we are going to talk about a lot this Thursday, the distinction between a basic capacity, when you have the basic capacity to appreciate the positions and to evaluate the positions of the three or four or five main parties that now graced the the, uh, British electoral system. You have that capacity. You have dozens of capacities. You choose to exercise some rather than others. And somebody who believes in equal respect for your opinion and for your vote is primarily responding to your capacity rather than to the way you've chosen to exercise it. And that might seem like a mistake from some points of view, and it may seem like it's important. Uh, from other points of view and that's more or less what I'm going to be talking about on Thursday, also a little bit on Monday when I'll talk about the way in which our views of this kind of sparkle back and forth. We say, well, you know, isn't it remarkable that this young man has the capacity even, never mind what he's done with it, that he has the, that capacity to take his country's future into his hands. And then we sparkle back to, yeah, but look what he's made of that capacity. You know, he barely knows the difference between UKIP and the Conservatives. Maybe nobody knows the difference between, <laughs> <laughs> between UKIP and the Conservatives. And then we say, yeah, but even so, he has the capacity. And, and so we, we move back and forward. And basic equality, in a way, requires us to come to rest on one side or other of that sparkle. But we never can come wholly to rest, because we do. we are also always regarding the exercise of the capacity as something important. So in lecture three on range properties and lecture four on this issue of sparkle, uh, I'll try to address these questions. In the meantime, I I suggest a severe reading of the newspapers.
0: (laughs) (laughs) One last final question.
3: Discourse of equality, the necessity, the desirability, the reality of equality, which has been discussed so far, is very much grounded in the European or the Western or the Judeo-Christian fundament. Is it possible to extend the of the discussion in the musical sense to include or to um, to consider the non-Judeo-Christian strands of thought, uh, particularly those to be found in uh, Southeast Asia and Eastern Asia?
1: Yeah. Um, I'm sure it's possible. It's not possible, I think, for me to do that, uh, given levels of expertise, um, and it would look remarkably ham-fisted if it were, but of course it should be done. Of course, because we regard ourselves now as being open, or we should regard ourselves as open to a whole array of ideas. And if these lectures show anything, I hope they show how complicated our thinking needs to be on these matters. And so complications should be welcome wherever they come from. We happen to be the heirs of a long tradition of thought about this in in what you refer to as a Judeo-Christian heritage and in the secular traditions that have um, developed out of that. And so it's certainly worth exploring those. Those have given us the terms of reference. If we were to start with a different set of ideas, either from Buddhist ideas or ideas from uh, South Asia, we would probably begin with a different set of categories. Certainly our lecture five would look quite different. So what I have to say is I, I have to apologize for my inability to discharge this further task, not just on cowardly grounds of lack of time, but on the rather more frank confession that I don't have the expertise to do it, but that by no means means it's unimportant.
0: Okay. Okay, so um, thank you very much, and uh, if this lecture was the um, toughest in terms of being complex, so that means that the Thursday one and the subsequent ones will be very easy to digest, so I encourage you to, <laughs> to come on Thursday. And once again, thanks to Professor Jeremy Wadron.